Chapter 8 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. As I look back, I can scarcely believe it possible that in Boston, where now I am bound by so many close, strong ties of friendship, I had then but one acquaintance, an acquaintance casually formed in the ballrooms of Paris. Mrs. B. called upon me as soon as my arrival in Boston was published. I had known her merely as a woman of fashion, chasing the butterfly pleasure, even as I was doing in Parisian salons. But now that I had a more earnest, a higher pursuit, all her falser self slipped from her like a robe, and she came to me in her true guise. It was the woman of soul that greeted me, full of tender sympathies and eager earnest, lamenting our misfortunes and ready to act the part of a devoted friend. She encouraged me in my undertaking, enlisting in my behalf the good wishes of her large circle of acquaintances brought a number of them to introduce to me, and exerted herself to the utmost to ensure a crowded audience to my first reading. She herself took one hundred tickets. I was strengthened and cheered by her untiring kindness. Her hearty enthusiasm gave me new faith in my own success. Beyond price at that moment was such a friend, and the impetus which she gave to my first efforts had their effect upon my whole career. Our letters of introduction brought us into communication with many delightful and some distinguished persons. Their interest in my novel undertaking was easily awakened, and their inspiring influence hemmed me around until I seemed to stand in a magic circle, guarded as by a charm from all inharmonious existences." These friendships formed at that period have been among the most enduring and the most valued of my life. We had only spent a few days in Boston when all the arrangements for my first appearance were satisfactorily completed. I was to read at the Masonic Temple for three successive nights. The evening of my debut was announced, and courteous editorial notices bespeaking a fair hearing appeared in all the principal papers. The day before that on which I was to make my debut, I entered the temple, and with a throbbing heart ascended the rostrum which I was to occupy during the readings. I tried my voice to learn whether it had compass enough to fill the capacious hall. Mr. Mawat and an old doorkeeper, who treated me in the most paternal and encouraging manner, were my only auditors. Yet it was with difficulty I could speak in so singular a situation. The words came gapingly forth, and I seemed to have lost all variety of intonation. I grew sick at heart. If my courage evaporated before an imaginary audience, how could I hope for presence of mind to carry me through the duties I had imposed upon myself when I stood in the presence of an actual crowd? I made effort after effort to recite, but my voice was choked. I could scarcely utter a word. I sat down on the steps of the rostrum, 
overwhelmed with doubts and fears, which rushed like freshets over my heart and swept away all its bright fabrics. I could not weep. I was too miserable for tears, and I could not listen to consolation. You're only a bit nervous, said the old doorkeeper, confidently. You'll get over that. I've seen great speakers look just as pale and frightened as you do now when they got up on this stand here. But they soon warmed up, and there is nothing to be afraid of. Still, I would not be consoled. I could only remember that if I failed, disgrace was added to our other ruin. The monster, self-mistrust, had entered my mind and was rapidly rooting up all its new and giant growths. We returned to the hotel. Cards, kind notes, and bouquets were awaiting me. One note was from Judge Story, written in the most encouraging strain. Another, from the poet Longfellow, apologized for not calling on the plea of illness. I was dispiritedly putting them aside when a letter was handed me. It was from my father. I had scarcely courage to break the seal. If his disapprobation were added to my present dejection, my failure was certain. The first words reassured me. My father had pondered well upon the course I proposed to pursue, and he gave my efforts not merely his sanction, but his heartiest approval. He bade me never lose sight of the motive I had in view, and with its help, my talents, as he was pleased to call them, would enable me to achieve a triumph. He gave me his own blessing, and assured me that, as far I was actuated by a sense of duty, I should win the blessing of heaven also. An indomitable energy and perseverance had characterized all the actions of my father's life. I inherited these traits from him, and with them a faculty for happiness that struck out the slender vein of gold in the drossiest earth of circumstance. As I read his letter, my whole nature was quickened by an influx, as it were, from his strong, never-weary, and ever-buoyant spirit. All my hopes returned, and from that moment my courage never wavered. The sun shone brightly upon the morning of my debut. The heavens seemed to smile benignly on my undertaking. That nothing might disturb my I refused to receive visitors, and passed the day quietly in my own chamber. Evening found me calm and strong of heart. I entered the carriage that bore me to the temple, not more agitated to outward appearance than if I had been hastening to a ball. I had resisted all entreaties to wear any rich attire, and was dressed in simple white muslin, a white rose in my bosom and another in my hair. I wore no ornaments. In the retiring room of the temple, we found several gentlemen, the warmest among our new friends, awaiting us. A painful anxiety was depicted in their faces. Well might they have wondered at the almost stony calmness of mine. They told me that the temple was crowded with one of the most fashionable audiences ever assembled within its walls. They entreated me to retain my self-possession, 
and poured into my ears words of sympathy and encouragement, which, in the abstraction of the moment, I scarcely heard. They remained with us until the clock struck half-past seven, the hour at which I was announced to appear. Do not keep the audience waiting. Bostonians dislike nothing more, said Mr. F., as he shook my hand and, accompanied by the other gentlemen, left the room to take his seat in the temple. Two minutes more, and I was within view of the audience. Mr. Mollett led me to the foot of the rostrum, but I ascended the steps alone. I remember curtsying slightly, half stunned by the repeated rounds of applause, the blaze of light, the dense crowd of faces all turned towards me. I sat down by the table that held my books and mechanically opened the one from which I was to read. I rose with it in my hand. Again came the burst of applause. The hall swam, then grew dark before me. I could not see the book that I held open in my hand. My veins were filled with ice. I seemed to myself transformed into a statue. Although I stood still, I could not, for a few seconds, have been more unconscious in the state of complete ination. The opening piece I had selected was the introduction to Scott's Lay of the Last Minstrel, and the first words I had to utter were, The way was long, the wind was cold. I could deliver the line feelingly, indeed, for I was shivering violently and weary and long seemed the way I had just entered. At length, in an uncertain voice, I commenced to read. Long before I had half finished the poem, my self-possession returned. A genial warmth displaced the icy chill. My voice grew loud and clear, and I found it easy to divest myself of all consciousness of the audience. I began also to become accustomed to the applause which at first oppressed and frightened me. I went through the various selections in order, and without betraying any further emotion. When half the entertainment was over, there was an intermission of ten minutes, and I was at liberty to withdraw into the retiring room. There I was greeted by a host of friends, all loud in their congratulations, and a note from my faithful ally, Mrs. B., told me of the delight of her party, and assured me of my perfect success. With renewed spirit, I reascended the rostrum and read the concluding poems with as much ease as I should have done to a select party of friends in my own drawing-room. At the hotel, a fresh assemblage awaited me. I was overwhelmed with the new congratulations and prophecies of a brilliant career, a career that would accomplish all that I had so much at heart. My deep joy transported me to the grape-hung bower. I stood there in thought, exclaiming, Our home is secured. I am mistress here still. It was past midnight before our visitors took their leave and allowed me to retire. When I was once more alone, when my full heart could again offer up its grateful thanks, I could weep again. What woman does not know the delicious relief of tears, the terrible privation when the eyes were made burning and unmoistened through suffering and trial? 
They were the first tears I had shed since the day I was told of the complete wreck of our fortunes. The future now seemed so bright before me that, in my ignorance of the world, I anticipated no difficulties, no drawbacks, no rebuffs. I saw but roses in the pathway of life's journey. I had yet to learn that sharp-edged flints are scattered on the road to lacerate the feet of those who walk not in the trodden ways. The next night I read again to an equally large and enthusiastic audience, and again on the third night to the same crowd, and was greeted with the same unmistakable tokens of approval. I was no longer in the slightest degree embarrassed. I felt as though I were reading to an audience of indulgent friends, who were determined to be pleased with my most imperfect efforts. So, in fact, they were. A spirit of chivalry towards a countrywoman evidently existed among the gentlemen. Mr. W.'s characteristic remark on the subject was, There is not a man in the temple who wouldn't fight for you. The critics dealt with me tenderly, as with a spoiled child whom Boston had suddenly adopted and was determined to protect. The papers teemed with notices, but they were eulogiums, not critiques. By common consent, it seemed to be decided that I was to be exempt from criticism. I was warmly pressed to remain and give a second course of readings, but I was now anxious to return to New York. We took our departure from Boston with a promise of a speedy return. In passing through Providence, I read one night to a crowded audience. During a recitation of The Missing Ship, written for me by Epps Sargent, and descriptive of the loss of the steamship president, a lady present was so deeply moved that she was carried from the hall in violent hysterics. This poem proved one of the most valuable in my repertoire, for it never failed to impress an audience. The Light of the Lighthouse, by the same author, which I afterwards frequently read in public, was equally effective in the recitation. I made my selections as often as possible from American poets. From Providence we went to New York, and a course of readings for four nights was announced to take place at the Stuyvesant Institute. Curiosity drew me full audiences, but I did not feel as though sympathy sat side by side with curiosity, as she had done in Boston. I found it more difficult to read impressively than I had done before my indulgent New England audiences. The sphere seemed different, the recipients less impressible. I could not feel the same easy abandon, the other freedom from constraint. I had too many personal friends constantly present, and I thought too much of what the Miss Grundys were saying. My father's delight and pride, warmly and openly expressed, compensated me for the sufferings inflicted by others, sufferings for which I was wholly unprepared. Some beloved relatives, and some who had been my nearest, dearest friends, friends from my early childhood, who were associated in my mind with all the sweetest, happiest hours of my life, now turned from me. They were shocked at my temerity in appearing before the public.
they even affected not to believe in mr mawet's total loss of means they tacitly proscribed me from the circle of their acquaintance when we passed in the street instead of the outstretched hand and loving greeting to which i had ever been accustomed i met the cold eye and averted face that shunned recognition i may now revert without bitterness to this sad era in my life for time circumstances and to speak the whole truth a succession of brilliant successes have now reunited the bright and once broken links all those whom i truly prized in the course of years allowed their affection and kinder judgment to overcome worldly prejudices they generously gave me back the place i once held in their hearts nor had i the right to complain because i was for a season misunderstood they but followed their convictions as i mine my love for them had never varied and if i had angered any among them my own life was sore if i fell from their presence i clung to their memory more their tender i often felt holy their bitter i sometimes call sweet and whenever their heart has refused me i fell down straight at their feet under the heavy pressure of mental suffering added to the exhaustion produced by unusual exertions my health gave way after fulfilling the course at the stuyvesant institute i became seriously ill and was forced to make several postponements of the time announced for my reading before the rutgers institute for young ladies when i was scarcely convalescent i read there for one night the hall was filled with an assemblage of lovely-looking young girls and their evident enjoyment inspired me to read with more energy and feeling than i had done since my nights in boston the effort cost me a relapse of some weeks again i rallied and gave a course of four nights reading at the society library i met with the same success as before but my strength was overtaxed the continued coldness of some of my dearest friends preyed upon my mind and threw me into a state of morbid nervous excitement i was attacked with fever and hemorrhages of the lungs for several months i was considered by my physician dr c in a state which rendered my recovery very improbable i had not been treated by the new york press with the same courteous leniency as by that of boston some of the leading papers were warm in their economies others contained most just criticisms pointing out faults of style of which i was myself gradually becoming conscious others condemned in toto the bold and novel step i had taken ignoring its motive one article appeared in the lady's companion written by a lady contributor of high literary standing severely denouncing my course and suggesting that if public readings must be given i should read before an audience entirely of my own sex it was a rather comical idea that the gentlemen were to be left at the door with the canes and umbrellas 
and yet the lady who wrote this singularly one-sided article is a gifted and estimable person but if one woman of literary standing wrote thus another of true genius and well-deserved fame poured the balm of her poetic spirit into the wound the lamented mrs francis sergeant osgood after attending one of the readings addressed to me the following poem the genuine expression of her truly womanly nature to anacora mollet on hearing her read by francis s osgood ne'er heed them cora dear the carping few who say thou leavest woman's holier sphere for light and vain display tis false as thou art true they need but look on thee but watch thy young cheeks varying hue a purer hope to see i too cora sooth to say when first i heard thy name in fancy saw a being bold who braved the wide world's blame i took my seat among the crowd in thoughtless glee to list the gifted poet's song with little heed for thee but suddenly a sound a murmur of surprise and fresh delight ran deepening round i coldly raised my eyes a being young and fair in purest white arrayed with timid grace tripped down the stair half eager half afraid as on the misty height soft blushes young aurora she dawned upon our dazzle sight our graceful modest cora the loveliest hair of gold that ever woman braided in glossy ringlets richly rolled brow neck and bosom shaded no jewel lit the tress no ornament she wore but robed as simply as a child she won our worship more the glowing gold and gems of fashion's proud attire were nothing to her cheek's soft bloom and her eyes azure fire forth from those pure blue eyes as from a starry portal a soul looked out and spoke to ours with beauty more than mortal but even applause was hushed when from her lips of love that voice of wondrous music gushed now soft as murmuring dove now calm in proud disdain now wild with joyous power indignant now as pleasure pain or anger rule the hour high in the listener's soul in tune each passion swells we weep we smile neath her control as neath a fairy's spell oh while such power is thine to elevate subdue believe thy mission half divine nor heed the carping few and cora falter not though critics cold may say thou leavest woman's holier lot for vain and light display my success gave rise to a host of lady imitators one of whom announced readings and recitations in the style of mrs mollet i was rather curious to get an idea of my own style and had my health permitted would have gone some distance to have seen it illustrated at one time there were no less than six advertisements in the papers of ladies giving readings in different parts of the union 
my first course of readings in new york was accidentally attended by one of the managers of the park theatre who through a friend made me a highly lucrative proposal if i would appear upon the stage i well remember the indignant reply i gave the gentleman who communicated to me this offer the recollection of that answer has often rendered me forbearing towards those who i have since heard violently denounce the stage and who were as ignorant as i was that period of everything that related to a theatre amongst the testimonials of interest which were called forth by my readings one of those which i most highly appreciated was a complimentary letter from professor howes perhaps one of the most finished elocutionists of the day my personal acquaintance with that gentleman did not commence until a later period. End of chapter 8